So I have to admit, as a younger, as a younger Christian, a person who is younger in my faith, I was always confused by the fact that there were four Gospels. The story of Jesus Christ, the good news, so to speak. And I never really understood why it was in there four times. And as a younger Christian who used the Bible probably not in the way that it was intended to, um, I would stumble on that quite a bit. And um, when I got a little more convicted that I wanted to read the Bible, I would sit down and I'd start, like many did, in the New Testament, not the Old um, and I'd read Matthew, and I'd read Mark, and Luke, and John, and I would get a little um, frustrated, if you will, at the parts that repeated. And when those parts repeated, I would start to skim. And I'd be like, I just read this, and I don't want to read this again. So I would skim and skim and skim and skim, and I'd find my way through there. And so that's part of the problem that I experienced with having four Gospels in the New Testament, is I would kind of skip over the pieces that seemed to repeat. And then... I would also get frustrated when I was looking for a verse in, in the Bible, right? I'm 53 years old, so my Christianity goes back before the internet, where you could just hop on there and Google something and say, hey, where, where did Jesus say this? You'd have to go and look it up in the Bible, and you'd be like, all right, well, I'm just going to flip to one of the Gospels, because Jesus said this, and then you'd go to one, and you'd find out, well, Jesus didn't say that in that Gospel, he wound up saying it in a different gospel. So then there were gaps, right? There were pieces in, in, in one gospel that weren't in the other gospel. There were missing pieces, so to speak. And that would be really frustrating for me, too. It'd be like, if you're going to tell the story four times, tell it the same, right? And don't leave anything out. And then the other part of that would be, you'd find Jesus would say something in one gospel or do something in one gospel, and then in another gospel, he'd say it a little different, or he'd do it a little different. And it seemed like there would be these inconsistencies in what Jesus said and what Jesus did, and almost some contradictions. And I'd find myself struggling with what to do with that, and I wouldn't really know. And the truth is, there aren't four Gospels in the Bible. There's one. There's one Gospel, and it's told four different times. And it's told from four different people, from four different points of view, and it's told to four different groups of people with four different purposes. And because of those different authors and those different perspectives and those different target audiences and those different objectives, you have to emphasize some points of the story and de-emphasize some other points of the story. So some pieces get more press and some people get less, and some pieces just get left out entirely because it's like, this doesn't really serve my purpose. Um, and I got to tell you, this week, I've done a lot of that this week. We've been preparing this message this morning. They're like, oh, there's all kinds of cool things you can cram in here. And in the end, it's like, that doesn't fit the purpose, so it's got to go. It's all good, but it can't stay because it's got to go. So really quick, the Gospel of Matthew, it was written to the Jewish people, specifically for the Jewish people, target audience, to convince them and assure them that Jesus was actually the Messiah, right? It's loaded with the genealogy of Jesus all the way back through King David, all the way up to Abraham, and it's got a lot of things in the Bible that fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. You find a lot of that in the Gospel of Matthew because that's its purpose, is to say, hey, fellow Jews... Jesus is the Messiah. And then you've got the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark was written specifically with the Roman people in mind. 
And the Roman people are these take action, can do kind of people. And so the Gospel of Mark really emphasizes Jesus' service. Jesus is basically a, um, a task-oriented kind of servant who came to serve humanity. And so the Gospel of Mark really emphasizes Jesus' service. And, and, and the emphasis there is that the Roman people should follow Jesus as an action-oriented servant kind of leader. And then you've got the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke was written with the common people of Greece in mind. Now, the common people of Greece did not have a covenant relationship with God like the Jewish people did. And they weren't politically connected and powerful like the Roman people were. They were just your common, ordinary people. They were hopeless, and they were poor, and sick, and powerless. And so the Gospel of Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. It emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of Man. It emphasizes his humble birth and his humble beginnings. And it portrays Jesus as the perfect human. And the message to the people of Greece is that you should try to emulate him. And the message to us when we read the Gospel of Luke also is that we should try to emulate him. Now the Gospel of John that we're studying this year was written differently. The church had been established, and it had been in existence for over 25 years when the Gospel of John was written. And Gospel of John was written to believers, Christian followers of Jesus Christ, who had some stumbling in their faith. They were basically getting hung up on a few things, and some false teachers had been introduced, and they were struggling with this idea that Jesus could be both Son of God and Son of Man at the same time. And so the Gospel of John was written to reassure these new believers and also these people that were struggling to become believers that Jesus was really the Son of God. And so the Gospel of John emphasizes all the miracles of Jesus, and it emphasizes testimony from people who can, can, can declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is why we are emphasizing uh, that Gospel this year. And so as I, as I got into... Um, Beyond this idea of reading the Bible and picking at it and cherry-picking at it and actually got into studying the Bible and even wrestling with the Bible a little bit, I came to understand that these differences were not really contradictions at all. But to really grasp what's going on in the Bible, it's really important to understand the context of it, who it was written for, when it was written, what's its purpose, who's, who's the writer of the gospel speaking to. And understanding that context can override a lot of those seeming contradictions that you experience in the Bible. So today, as Jeff mentioned, we are going to be talking about John the Baptist as he is introduced in the Gospel of John and his ministry of baptism. And before we do that, I would like to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing your son Jesus to us through the Gospel of John this morning. As you speak to all of us through these words, dear Lord, we pray that the words I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts will be true to your word and bring honor and glory to you and help us develop a greater understanding of you and your will for each of our lives. Amen. Well, as I just mentioned, we're going to talk about the testimony of John the Baptist this morning. And 
Interestingly enough, the Gospel of John literally provides zero background on who John the Baptist is as a purpose, as a person, right? We've all read about John the Baptist living out in the desert and eating locusts and wild honey and wearing camel's hair and wild hair and all this kind of stuff. None of that's in the Gospel of John. And that's kind of interesting because John the Baptist... um, had been in ministry for a while, and the Apostle John, the writer of the, of the Gospel of John, was believed to have been a disciple of John the Baptist before he became a disciple of Jesus. And so you would think if anybody could provide some firsthand accounting on the kind of person that John the Baptist was, it would be the Apostle John. But he leaves all that out. And all he says about John the Baptist before he actually gets into his ministry is he says in in verse 6 of of the first gospel of John, we talked about this a week or two ago, only that John was sent by God to testify about Jesus so that everyone might believe in him. The gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John contain a lot of background information about John the Baptist, and if you're interested in that, we'd encourage you to read it. But this is a study about the gospel of John, and I was very tempted to put some of that background in there, and I thought, you know what? If Chuck Swindle decided not to include all that in this, then who am I to decide to do all that as well? So let's just leave all that out. We're going to focus on what the Apostle John has to say about John the Baptist this morning. So for purposes of our conversation this morning, we need to know that he lived in the desert and he had a ministry of baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. And that's how he acquired his name. His birth name was John. And he picked up the Baptist part because he had a ministry of baptism. And he'd been doing this for some time when the religious leaders approached him in the desert and they came to question him about what he was doing and why he was doing that. And that's where our reading is going to take on this morning. Debbie, if you could put that up there. We're going to start with John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. Here's the reading. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now you may recall in the Old Testament that the The prophet Elijah did not die. He was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so um, he he was still living in, in everybody's mind. And in the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there's a reference that John the Baptist, or I'm sorry, Elijah, or an Elijah like figure, would return to announce the imminent arrival of the Messiah. And um, so. People were thinking that with John the Baptist, um, that he might actually be Elijah. But John tells them that he isn't. And that's actually kind of interesting. And this is a topic of a sermon for another day, because we don't have time to get into it this morning. But later on, Jesus actually refers to John the Baptist as Elijah in, in Matthew chapter 17. And he actually refers to John the Baptist as Elijah. So either John didn't understand fully what his role was in in God's grand master plan, or he was just taking the question very literally. And they said, are you Elijah? And he's like, nope, I'm John the Baptist. Um, So either he's taking that very, very literally, or even John the Baptist didn't fully understand 
where he fit into the big picture of things. And when the Jewish leaders are asking John if he was the prophet, what they're probably referring to is when Moses was talking to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he mentioned to them that a prophet would, be, um, would arrive to basically um, uh, foreshadow the Messiah as well. And so the Jewish leaders are asking John, okay, well, if you're not Elijah, are you this prophet that Moses specifically foretold of? And John again says, no. I mean, we would consider John to be a prophet, but he did not consider himself to be the prophet that Moses foretold. So again, he answers no. Finally, they say, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, as Jeff mentioned this morning as we started worship this morning, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now John uses this well-known prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 to basically just describe himself simply as a voice. When a king would travel to another city, there would be a forerunner that would go before the king's chariot, and he would announce the coming of the king. And that would give the city time to prepare, to clear the road, to get things, any obstacles out of the way, that anything that would make the king's journey take longer or make it unpleasant, that would give the people in the city time to prepare and clear the way for the king. Now, the forerunner himself had no authority whatsoever. He was just making an announcement. And if the people in the city actually cleared the way for the king, it would be because they had great love and respect for the king, not because they had any respect for the forerunner or the messenger. And so John's answer is intended here to basically eliminate any thoughts in the religious leader's mind that he himself was someone of any kind of importance. Back to our reading. Now the Pharisees who had been sent, they questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So there's the question that they really want to know. If you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not a prophet, why are you baptizing people? And the reason they're asking that question is because that was their job. The priests did baptism. And baptizing people was a right and a privilege that was usually reserved for those priests to perform. And here John was doing it. So they were focused on their religious rites and their rituals and the privileges that came with their positions. And, and Jewish baptism was performed in a religious ceremony. And it was performed on non-Jewish or Gentile converts to the Jewish faith. So a person would be submerged in pure water and as an act of basically a cleansing ritual so that then they could enter into that covenant of God with the rest of the Jewish people. And so it was performed by priests and holy robes in a ceremony and, um, you know, pure water and everything else. And it's, it's not supposed to be performed by long-haired, wild-eyed, bug-eating wild men in the desert. And it's not supposed to be performed by dunking people into the muddy water of the Jordan River. And it's not supposed to be performed for forgiveness of sins for Jewish people. It's supposed to be performed for Jewish converts, Gentiles who are converting to Judaism. So John is just breaking all the rules, and he doesn't look good while he's doing it either. And the religious leaders 
are not very excited about that. And they're like, hey, who are you to be doing this? This is our gig, and you're, you're taking it away from us. So John was messing with the religious rituals, and the Pharisees didn't really like it. So in spite of this, though, John doesn't really debate him on that. He just moves on, and he puts the attention back on Jesus. And he says this, I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And all of this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And this first half of this reading is all about questioning John. Who are you? And are you the Messiah? And are you Elijah? And are you the prophet? And it's understanding that the timing of John's arrival on the scene would be confusing. If you go back to the Old Testament, there's a progression of prophets, right? From Moses to Malachi. And then at at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi is that last book of the Old Testament. And there's this 400-year gap where nobody hears boo from God, right? God says nothing. He's completely silent. And people are eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come. And then this guy shows up, and he's baptizing people, and they're like, are you him? He's like, no, right? So John has a ministry and a purpose and a calling, but the timing of this is just really strange, and it's confusing to people. And it's like, why after 400 years did you send two people? Why send one to baptize and then the Messiah practically at the same time and create all this confusion? And we gain some insight into this question, not necessarily all the answers. There's, there's a lot of prophetic references um, to um, the, the one who would come, as Jeff mentioned, Isaiah 40, chapter 3, the voice of one calling to prepare the way for the Lord. And there's fulfillment of prophecy in John's arrival as well. But I think there's also a practical reason for John to show up at exactly the time that he did. And we're going to hear about that now. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look... The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. That is the reason. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I, meaning John, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So John's role was a lot bigger, as it turned out, than just baptizing people for the forgiveness of sin and preparing their heart for Jesus' arrival. John's ministry had been established a little bit before Jesus' ministry, and John already had a fairly decent following. He had his own disciples, and he had people that were coming to hear what he had to say about repentance. And that ministry of baptism was actually used as a launching pad for Jesus' ministry. Right By baptizing Jesus, who didn't really need to be baptized, he was sinless. So to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins when you haven't committed any, and Jesus says later that that's just to fulfill righteousness, but it also creates some clarity. John is foretold, hey, when the spirit of dove lands on the head of somebody, 
spirit of, of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove or in the form of a voice or the form of the light, whatever form it takes, when you see the Holy Spirit land on someone that you're baptizing, that is the Son of God. And John then is able to testify to that in front of all the people that he is testifying to. In this case, it's the religious leaders. But prior to that, it would have been all the other people that were following John and listening to what he had to say. So that's the reading. That's John the Baptist. That's his ministry. That's the baptism of Jesus. And what do we do with that? If you've met in your life groups already this year, right, some of the things that we're talking about after we study this and we ask some questions about the reading, we then ask the questions of how do you apply the story to your own life, right? These are neat stories, and it's good to know, and we've got an amazing Savior, and we've got an amazing God, and John the Baptist had an amazing ministry too, but what do we do with this? So here's a couple of takeaways Um, things that we can do um, in response to this reading. And the first is this. Don't be like the Pharisees. And that sounds really stupid to say, right, to a bunch of people, Christians sitting in a church. Of course we're not going to be like the Pharisees. Who would want to be like the Pharisees? And I didn't say don't want to be like the Pharisees. I said don't be like the Pharisees. Because whenever I think you read a story in the Bible that contains people who are contrary to the will of God, we have to be willing to take a look at ourselves and see ourselves in those people in the story. And then we realize that we are the ones that need God's grace as well. Otherwise, it's always these other idiot people who didn't get it, while we can look at it with the benefit of having the entire Bible laid out for us and say, well, we get it but we don't get it either sometimes. So we heard earlier how the Pharisees were all concerned about John doing baptism without proper authority and without the proper rituals, and he wasn't doing it the way they wanted. And we have to ask ourselves, too, in what ways do we get hung up on our religion and the parts of our religion that we were raised with that have become important to us? These things become so ingrained in our, in our minds and our hearts and our spirits over time that we sometimes equate them with Jesus, and they get our devotion. And we've all got these things, right? Ah, I really got to have this to worship God effectively. And um, they're different for everybody. I just wanted to share a couple of examples um, that we've heard over the last five years since founding Faith Lutheran Church of um, things that can be an obstacle to people's faith in terms of religion. We've heard that faith can't be a real church because it doesn't have a building. That was a big one when we first started. So, well, how can you be a church? You don't have a building. And then we heard specifically, one time, our last building was actually a hotel conference room or a a ballroom, and they're like, specifically, there's something bad about hotels. I don't know what it is, but you can worship anywhere, but you can't worship in a hotel. That was a problem. So so here we are. We're in this building, but we don't own it yet, um, so we can't be a real church. Um, We've also heard that some won't visit faith because it's got the word Lutheran in its name. And they were raised Methodist or something else. And we've also heard from people that they won't visit faith because it's the wrong version of Lutheran in its, in its name. Now, all of this in spite of the fact that Faith Lutheran Church is a non-denominational church. Um, if you were at our annual meeting last week, I mentioned it's got Lutheran in its name because when a bunch of Lutheran people form a church, they don't know what else to call a church. And so they're like, well, we'll call it Faith Lutheran Church. But it's not a non-denominational church. We don't have a synod. 
We don't answer to a bishop. We are an independent congregation. We are affiliated with some other Lutheran churches to provide support for each other, but we're non-denominational. But the fact that we've got Lutheran in our name or that we aren't a particular brand of Lutheran is a stumbling block for people. And we've got some, some more good ones. Here they come. Um, we've had people who have actually worshipped at faith and have left. And that happens. And I'm not picking on these people. I just think we need to look for these things in ourselves. And so I bring them out. And I'm not naming names and, and don't want to go there. But we've heard from folks that they don't like the music. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> they don't like the music. So fix that, would you? Um, We've heard people don't like the fact that we don't say the Apostles' Creed every single week. We don't have a standard liturgy, and that's a problem for people. We've heard from someone, and I kid you not, they did not like the fact that we say the word sins in the Lord's Prayer instead of trespasses. Now, look up the Lord's Prayer in the Bible and see if it says the word trespasses in there anywhere. It doesn't. But someone's book of worship did when it had the Lord's Prayer in there. And we don't say the word trespasses anymore because we wanted to be more biblically based. So we, we changed that to sins. And for some people, that was a problem. Um, so anyway, now, these things don't apply to any of you guys that are here today or listening online. If they did, you wouldn't be here. But what are the things that we hold on to that can get in our way? Right? Where are we devoted to our religion instead of devoted to Jesus Christ. Because Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship. Christianity is about God restoring the relationship that he always wanted to have, always intended to have with us. And we kept pulling away. So Jesus comes to gather us back together in relationship with God. And that's what Christianity is all about. But over the 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth, man has created a lot of religious constructs around that relationship with Jesus. It says you can't have a relationship with Jesus unless you say the Apostles' Creed. You can't have a relationship with Jesus unless you say the word trespasses in the Lord's Prayer. You can't have a relationship with Jesus unless you do all kinds of things. And none of that is really true. And the Pharisees got hung up on that stuff and that, quite frankly, is why both John the Baptist and Jesus held them in such contempt, because they wouldn't let go of that stuff. It's understandable after so many years of practicing the Christian faith in this particular church and doing these particular rituals that it would be a little bit of a challenge to let go of those, but ultimately we have to all let go of those things and get down to what's really, really important, and that's the relationship with Jesus Christ and our relationship with each other. So don't be Pharisees. That's a good lesson for all of us. Number two, speak the truth. John the Baptist spoke the truth. And he always spoke the truth even when it wasn't necessarily easy or popular to say. He spoke plainly. He spoke truthfully about who he was and who he wasn't. And he called on the Jews to approach God as if they were newly converted sinners, just like everybody else. He called out religious leaders for their hypocrisy. He called out King Herod for his unlawful marriage to Herodias. And ultimately, his call to speak the truth cost him his life. But he remained bold 
in his faith and his desire to speak the truth until his last breath. And it didn't cost him his life until Jesus' ministry was already in full swing when he knew that his ministry needed to be on the decline anyway. And in the same way, we need to be willing to speak the truth about Jesus at all times, not just when it's convenient and even when it might cost us something, cost us our standing, cost us, in some cases, some relationships. Jesus called each of us to go out and make disciples of all nations, and we can't always do that with our mouths closed, right? We can't do it with only our mouths either. It's a combination of things, but sometimes there's a time to speak, and we need to exercise that, that time to speak. But we also need to exercise great care when we speak the truth, We can't just go around spouting off about this or that and bludgeoning anybody who gets in our way while we're out speaking the truth, right? And, hey, that's okay because I'm speaking the truth. First, we got to know what the truth is. And we have to be really confident that we're speaking our truth and not, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, strike that, reverse it. We have to be really careful that we're speaking God's truth and not ours. We have to be sure of that. And the second thing is that we have to know who our audience is And we have to balance that message of truth with grace. Whenever I hear about John the Baptist and this message of repentance, here's the image that comes to mind. If you could put that up there. Right? See street corner preachers or these campus evangelists who hold up these signs and they get in your face. And they're like, you're going to go to hell. Repent and be saved. Right? That's what I think about when I think about John the Baptist, and, and this message of repentance. Um, now, the core of their message is true, right? We do need to repent, and we do need to turn to Jesus for our salvation. So those messages are all true, and they probably do indeed bring a few people to Christ with that message. But it's hard to see how anyone can feel good about being saved at gunpoint, Right? Who wants to be saved that way? That kind of turn or burn theology is, um, can really do some damage, too, to the people that are standing by. Normally, when you see these people spouting off these messages on these campuses or on street corners, you usually see a crowd. But they're usually mocking the people doing the speaking, right? And they're talking amongst each other, and they're making fun of the people, and they're not really listening to what's going on. Um, And that kind of stuff can really give Christianity, and more importantly, Jesus, a bad name. And so we want to be careful about that. And the, the truth is that that wasn't really John's ministry at all. That's John Petrillo's perception of what John the Baptist was all about. When John says, repent and be saved, that's what I often equate it to, is those people with big signs and getting in people's face. John definitely preached a message of repentance, and he may as well even been confrontational from time to time. But his ministry took place in the desert, 23 miles away from Jerusalem. People had to see him. They had to go and see him. When we read earlier from verse 28, the religious leaders, it said all of this happened on the other side of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. The, the religious leaders sent people to John. People were being sent to John to be baptized. But again, 23 miles east of Jerusalem, people are going out of their way to hear that message. They were eager to hear that message. 
They needed to hear a message of repentance, but more importantly, they wanted to hear a message of repentance. And so you can preach a message of repentance to someone who wants to be in a relationship with God already or thought they were in a relationship with God already and needs course correction and desperately wants it. But they wanted to hear that message. John just wasn't telling people on the street or posting on Facebook, convert, repent, be saved. That wasn't what was happening, and we can't do that today either. But there are a lot of people out there, Christians, that are doing that very thing, just getting in someone's face that they have no relationship with or posting on Facebook that they're going to burn in hell. John didn't do that, and we can't do that either. The third thing is to always point people to Jesus. There's telling the truth for truth's sake, but then there's always pointing people to Jesus, and there's a, there's a difference there. And John's purpose in his entire life and his entire ministry was to point people to Jesus. His ministry of baptism, his message of repentance, they were, they were designed to prepare people for Jesus' baptism by the Holy Spirit. And when the religious leaders questioned who he was, he just referred to himself as a voice out in the wilderness to prepare people for Christ's coming. When they asked him about his ministry, he deflected to Jesus. Everything about John just pointed back to Jesus. And I wanted to ask this morning for those of you here, how many of you have ever told Pastor Brian on a Sunday morning, great message today, Pastor Brian, how many? Yeah, what does he say every time after you say great message? Praise God every single time. Doesn't matter how you say it, doesn't matter where you're at or whatever, just Praise God every single time you tell Pastor Brian he preached a great sermon today about a specific sermon, or if you ever try to give him praise in general about what a great preacher you are overall, right? So whether it's a specific message or just about who he is as a pastor, his response is always, praise God. He always puts it back on God. Now, Pastor Brian is a very humble person, but he doesn't just say that out of a sense of humility, Pastor Brian knows what John the Baptist knew, and that is that you can't allow your admirers to mistake the messenger for the message. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the person talking about Jesus. Some of you may know that my dad was also a pastor, and we were going through some boxes of his old belongings this past summer, and we came across this binder. Um, it's just a cheap vinyl binder, um, and he obviously didn't use it very much. He was in ministry for 30 years. I think this is one of the last binders he used before he um, retired because the other ones he had are all covered with tape and falling apart. But these are, this is the binder that he kept his sermons in um, when he would come up to preach. And so I commandeered this. I didn't figure he needed it anymore. And um, so now my sermon's in it. But there's a little note taped in here at the beginning. I'll just show it to you. It's old and yellow and just taped on here. Uh, and this was a reminder to my dad, um, and it says this. People should be able to go away after a sermon saying, what a wonderful Savior we have, rather than what a wonderful sermon that was. So if you want to hear something from Pastor Brian on a Sunday morning other than praise God, tell him what a wonderful Savior we have. Say thank you for pointing out to me what a wonderful Savior we have. And see if you don't get a different response, because that'll keep it all about Jesus. And we, too, need to be mindful about pointing everybody to Jesus. 
in everything that we say, but also everything that we do. Our lives have to mirror what we say. We can't be contradictory or duplicitous there. Now, we may have some constraints at work, right? For those of us that work, there's rules and employee handbooks. And for people who work in the public sector, there's laws of the community and the state, whatever. We have to abide by those, right? And it's okay. There's going to be constraints on what we can say while we're working. But we can always show Christ's love to people, no matter where we are, whether we're at work or anywhere else. And outside of work, we all have a sphere of influence with our family, with our friends, with our life groups here at church, and even out in the community. And that sphere may be big, or that sphere may be small. But God can use our lives for his glory if we allow him to, and if we keep our focus always on Jesus. And just like John the Baptist, we may not know where we fit into the big picture completely. People asked John if he was Elijah, and he said no. People asked Jesus about Elijah, and he said he already came in the form of John the Baptist, and you missed it. John didn't even fully understand where he fit into the big picture. He just did what he was called to do, baptize people and announce that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't necessarily see where he fit into the bigger picture, and we don't either, and we don't have to. God is God, and we are not, and we just need to do what we've been called to do, and that's to go and make disciples and grow as disciples ourselves. We've each got a role to play in growing God's kingdom by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So if our lives always point to Jesus and we grow in our faith and we grow disciples of Jesus Christ, that is what God is calling us to do. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for men like John the Baptist who you called into ministry, who answered that call to ministry, that pointed so many people towards you, not necessarily knowing how big the ripples went, not necessarily knowing how big the sphere of influence was, not necessarily knowing how big the impact was, focused on the mission, not so much the results, we thank you, dear Lord, for the example of John the Baptist. We thank you, dear Lord, for the example of his son, Jesus, who came in right behind him and immediately became baptizing. Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts to the ministry that you called each and every one of us to. No matter our age, no matter our occupation, no matter our standing in the community. You called each and every one of us, Lord, to grow disciples. Father in heaven, there are people that only we would reach. They need to hear about your son from us. So we pray that you'll embolden us, empower us, encourage us to go forward into our community, into our homes, into the marketplace, into the world, 
to let everyone know that you are a good and gracious God, that you love us, want to be in relationship with us, and that we're saved by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.